Good morning, Grace. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I just want to say thank you for your giving at Grace and, and for supporting our budget because part of our budget money we have designated and set aside for the pastoral staff to be able to go on a retreat or a conference to get refreshed. And so last week, I was able to go to the Desiring God conference in Minneapolis, and it was a much-needed time. I needed to get away and get refreshed and renewed. I came back physically exhausted as is expected when you go away to these things because you meet up with friends and you stay up late and you get up early. But I came back refreshed and I just want to thank you for your willingness to support our budget and part of that, the pastoral staff can get away from time to time. So thank you very much. First Peter chapter two, if you haven't turned there, do so now. Let's pray one more time real quick. Father, as we come to your word, I am needy, we are needy. And unless your spirit opens our minds and illumines our minds, and we'll never see Jesus. So we ask that you would help us to see your son in this passage and to see him as the greatest treasure of our lives that no matter what we endure in this world, Father, Jesus would captivate us. He would be our treasure and he would be our delight. And so we ask you to send out your light and your truth this morning to lead us to your holy hill so that we will go to the altar of God, to God our exceeding joy. Make Jesus our exceeding joy this morning. As we look at your word, in his name we pray, amen. I don't like my boss. I think he's a jerk. I hate my job. I dread coming to work every day. I wish I could quit. I've wanted to walk out many times. And I don't like my coworkers. They get on my nerves. For once, I'd love to sing that old country song to my boss. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. You ever had those thoughts? As a young kid, I used to listen to that song by David Allen Coe and think, even as a young kid, I thought, there must be some superior satisfaction and just getting to tell your boss that you're quitting and not just quitting, but telling him to shove it. Just walking away with no care. I used to sing that song as a kid and thought, man, that would be great to do. And then Travis Tritt, another country singer, came out with a song that said, here's a quarter, call someone who cares. You may remember that song. Some of you kids are like, what in the world does that mean? Call somebody and use a quarter? They, they had these things called pay phones back in the day. Your parents can explain. But even though Travis Tritt's song was directed to his ex-lover, I used to think that there must be a sense of relief and retaliation and empowerment and, and freedom and superior satisfaction to just tell your boss, actually flip them a quarter and say, here's a quarter, call someone who cares, and then just walk out. These two songs are such great, I'm quitting my job, I don't care what you think about me songs. Or you could be like the woman last year who told her boss that she was quitting as part of a Super Bowl commercial. She knew her boss would be watching the game, and so as part of a GoDaddy.com Super Bowl commercial, she told her boss that she was quitting in front of the entire nation. Now, I don't recommend that you sing these country songs to your boss when you quit. I don't recommend that you quit your job in front of national television on a Super Bowl commercial I don't recommend that you sever any working relationship those ways. But sometimes you might just want to. Sometimes you might want to tell your boss he can shove it. 
Sometimes you might want to do it in a very public way. You ever feel like that? Of course you have. We all have, haven't we? We've all been at that place where we think the grass is greener on the other side. Where if we could just leave our current job, it would be so much better somewhere else. We've all been at that place where we've envied someone else's job. And if we could just get that job, then we'd be fine. If we could just get a new job, then finally we would be happy at work. We've all been at that place where we truly believed that the grass was greener on the other side. Have you ever been there? Sometimes we find ourselves in that place. That place where we just want to walk out of the job that we have because our boss is a jerk or because our coworkers are lazy or because everybody at work is just driving us crazy. And sometimes all of these difficulties arise because you are a Christian because you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. Sometimes you get mistreated at work because you are a Christian. So sometimes we work jobs and have co-workers and bosses that we can't stand. So what do we do then? What do we do when our work environment is horrible, when our boss is horrible, mistreats us? Because we're believers. What hope does the gospel offer us when we find ourselves having to endure suffering at our places of employment? Well, Peter will tell us in these verses how the gospel changes everything in our life as a Christian. How the gospel changes our relationships. How it gives us hope and and what we can do And what we should do when we find ourselves working under horrible bosses, even those who mistreat us. Especially when those bosses mistreat us because we are Christians. And so here's our big idea today. The grief you endure does not compare to the grace that you'll enjoy. The grief And the suffering and the injustices that we experience and that we endure as believers in this world do not compare in any way whatsoever. They do not compare to the grace that we will enjoy in eternity forever. Now Paul said something very similar to this in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He said, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us For an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. But contextually here in 1 Peter, Peter is addressing specifically the injustices that we endure in our workplaces because we follow Jesus. So my alternate big idea is this. When your boss is a jerk and you hate where you work, suffer in that place until you see grace. That's really what Peter is saying in these verses today. He's telling us as Christians we are called to be a gospel witness in our workplace. Not that we will do it perfectly because we know that we are sinners. Well, there's no way we could do it perfectly. Only Jesus is perfect. But Peter is telling us that as Christians we're called to be a gospel witness in our workplace. We're called to respond the way that Jesus did when he suffered. More on that next week. But one of the ways that we 
proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, as Peter said in 1 Peter 2.9. 2, one of the ways that we do that is in the way that we react to our superiors at work, especially when our superiors treat us bad, especially when they treat us bad because we are Christians. So that's what this whole section is about. It's about this. When your boss is a jerk and you hate where you work, suffer in that place until you see grace. And as we go through this section and talk about suffering today, understand that this passage here is directly and indirectly addressing suffering in three ways. Number one, you may suffer injustices just because you are a Christian and your boss hates that you are a Christian. You may suffer injustices in this world at your workplace precisely because your boss knows that you love Jesus and your boss can't stand Jesus. So that's one way that this passage, it's specifically, it's the way this passage is addressing us. But secondly, you may suffer injustice just because you have a boss who is a jerk to everyone, regardless of what they believe. You may suffer along with all of your coworkers just because your boss is simply a jerk all the time to everybody. So you're not singled out by him because you're a Christian. You just suffer alongside everyone else because your boss is a jerk. That's the second way that this passage can address us today. And thirdly, you may suffer injustices just because you live in a fallen, broken world. This is true of all of us. We will all experience injustices in our life just because this world is broken. Because Adam, the first human being created by God because he rebelled against God and sinned in the Garden of Eden, sin entered this world and this world is broken and a part of living in a broken world is that we will all suffer injustices at some point in our lives. So those are the, the three ways that directly or indirectly this passage helps us to understand suffering. You may suffer at your workplace because you're a Christian. Or you may suffer at your workplace just because your boss is a jerk to everyone. And thirdly, you may suffer injustices and you will just because you live in a fallen, broken world. So keep those in mind as we talk about suffering unjustly and enduring hardships in life. Now remember what Peter is doing in this particular section of the letter. He's showing us how we are called to submit to others and to subject ourselves in all of the relationships that we find ourselves in. In verses 13 through 17, two weeks ago, we, call, we saw that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to submit to our government and to our leaders. Today in verses 18 through 21, we'll see that we're called to submit to our boss in our workplaces and then in verses 22 to 25, Peter will show us how Jesus submitted himself. And then he will talk about in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, our marriages, how we're called to submit to one another, serve one another. And then in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3, Peter will talk about how we're to submit and serve others in the church family. So you've got the government we're supposed to submit to and our leaders, our workplace, our boss, then he shows us how Jesus submitted and suffered. And then he talks about how we're to submit to one another in our marriages and then in our church family. So sandwiched in the middle of government, job, spouse, church family, sandwiched right in the middle is the gospel of how Jesus suffered and submitted himself. 
At the center of all of these relationships that we find ourselves is the gospel. That means that the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes every relationship that you have with every single person on this planet. Jesus changes everything in your life. So Peter has sandwiched in between these four relationships how Jesus submitted, how he suffered, and that's the example that we are to look to in order to do that in all of our relationships. Today, we'll see how we're called to suffer under difficult bosses. Now, this does not mean that you can never look for a new job. This does not mean that you have to work where you work for the rest of your life and that you can never leave. This doesn't mean that if you see a job listing and you think that the grass is greener on the other side that you can't apply for that job. The grass might be greener at that job. There may be better pay and there may be better benefits. So fire off an application if you want to. But God may or may not open those doors for you to leave. But as long as you are where you are, wherever you are, whatever job you have, you were called to submit to and to respect your boss, even if your boss is a jerk and mistreats you. Obviously, as we saw a few weeks ago with our government, if your boss asks you to do something that goes against scripture, you don't submit to that. You don't go against God's word. But otherwise, you're called to submit to and respect your boss, even if they're a jerk and they mistreat you. And that's who Peter is addressing today, people who are working under very difficult bosses. In fact, the people that that Peter is writing to are slaves. They are servants, and they have masters. Look at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, of course, we don't have this kind of relationship in place today. We don't have slaves and masters in our culture, although some of us may think that our boss is a whip-wielding taskmaster and that he treats us like slaves. We don't have this kind of relationship these days. But the closest correlation we have today with the original audience is where we work and whom we work for. And so that's the angle that we must approach this passage today since we don't have slaves and we don't have servants and masters in our culture. Now, the Greek word here for servants is the domestic word for slaves. It refers to household servants or slaves or helpers. And scholars estimate that there were some 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And some of these slaves, these household servants, would have come to this position of being a slave because, one, they were either captured in war or they were kidnapped by someone or they were born into a family. Their parents were slaves. And some slaves could even, some people would sell themselves into slavery because they experienced some financial hardship and they just wanted to eat and survive. So some people would sell themselves into this situation. And these household slaves and servants did everything from menial household chores all the way to teaching children school, serving as doctors and musicians and artists. And some slaves could even own their own slaves. And so as we approach this passage Today, we have to be careful not to import our understanding of slavery from what we know of slavery in this country. The horrific conditions and the horrific treatment of the African-American slaves in early America was not the norm in Roman times. Some slaves were viewed like family members back then. 
They taught their master's children school. They played with them, babysat them, cooked, cleaned. However, because we are sinners, and because masters in Peter's day were sinners too, some slaves were treated harshly by their masters. Some masters did beat their slaves. Some masters were very cruel to their slaves. And that's one of Peter's point in our passage today. It did happen. But the institution of slavery was different from the slavery that we know of in our country's past. The entire social structure of the Roman world was built around slavery. As I mentioned, the scholars estimate that there were some 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And this is why the New Testament writers do not come out and condemn Roman slavery. The writers of the New Testament don't condemn slavery in their letters because it was such a part of Roman culture. Tom Schreiner explains, Modern people often ask why the New Testament writers did not criticize the institution of slavery or advocate its overthrow. The latter was completely unrealistic for the fledgling New Testament church in the Roman Empire. The young churches would be fighting the consensus of the Greco-Roman world, and hence any such attempt would be doomed to futility. Why was there not criticism of the practice? Again, we must remember that New Testament documents address readers in the situation in which they live. Railing against slavery would not be of any help to ordinary Christians. For, as noted, the dissolution of slavery was out of the question. Furthermore, New Testament writers were not social revolutionaries. They did not believe that overhauling social structures would transform culture. Their concern was the relationship of individuals to God, and they focused on the sin and rebellion of individuals against their creator. New Testament writers, therefore, concentrated instead on the godly response of believers to mistreatment. Peter fits this paradigm nicely, for he admonished his readers to respond in a godly way to persecution and oppression. So Peter is writing to a group of people who are an integral part of the Roman social structure. And he tells them, these Christian slaves, that they should respect their masters, regardless of how mean or how good they were to them. In fact, the word for respect in verse 18 is literally fear. But Peter is not saying that slaves should fear their masters. Almost every time that Peter uses fear in his letter, he uses it in reference to fearing God. So what Peter is saying is that Christian slaves should fear their Lord. Christian slaves should show respect and submit to their masters out of fear of the Lord, not out of fear of their earthly masters. Christian slaves should want to please their heavenly father and honor him in the place where they serve. And that should be our attitudes at our workplaces. We should respect and honor our bosses precisely because we want to honor and to please the Lord. Remember, the gospel changes everything. It changes your perspective. It changes your relationship. It changes how you relate to people in your workplace. Well, then Peter will tell these slaves something that is amazing. Peter will tell them that if they suffer harsh treatment, maybe even getting beaten physically by their master, then Peter will say, that's grace. Peter will tell them that it's grace when they suffer injustices. Look at verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
For what credit is it if when you sin and, beaten, and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Two times Peter tells these Christian slaves, these disciples, that it is a gracious thing to suffer unjustly. Now, what in the world does this mean? Well, let's look first at how Peter has constructed these two verses. He first says, basically, he says this. If you do nothing wrong and you suffer unjustly and you endure that, there's a reward for you. Then he says, if you do something wrong and you suffer for it and you endure that, there's no reward for you because you did something wrong. Then he'll say one more time, if you do nothing wrong and you suffer unjustly and you endure that, there's a reward for you. So what Peter is saying is that there is no reward for you as a slave if you do bad and then get beaten or suffer in some way and then you endure that punishment. And the reason why is you deserved it. You did something bad. You did something wrong. So there are no cookies for anyone who does something bad, gets punished, and then endures that punishment. There's no credit, Peter says. There's no reward for you. If you goof off at work and get in trouble and endure your punishment, there's no reward for you. If you're a slacker at work and your hours get cut because you are a slacker and you endure that punishment, there's no reward for you. You're punished because you're a slacker. No one's going to give you a reward for being a slacker, are they? You're going to get your hours cut or lose your job. But this is not the case for a slave, Peter says, who does nothing wrong and yet they suffer and get beaten for it and they endure that beating. So let's put it in our culture now. If you do nothing wrong at work but you get in trouble anyway, especially because you are a Christian and you endure because you want to please the Lord with your response to that injustice, then Peter is saying you will be rewarded by God one day. That's what Peter means when he says, mindful of God. He means that if you endure unjust suffering at work because you are a Christian and you want to respond to that injustice in a way that makes Jesus look good, in a way that pleases God, then God will reward you one day. In other words, if you're mindful of God when you suffer and you want to send the message that Jesus is better than anything you lose out on, Peter is saying there is a reward coming for you. So Peter means that if your boss is a jerk to you and doesn't like the fact that you are a Christian and they go out of their way to make things difficult for you because you are a Christian and they give you grief and they slander you and you don't get that well-deserved raise or they tell you that you can't listen to praise and worship music at work or whatever it is that comes upon you because you belong to Jesus, if you respond with grace and you don't mouth off, or have a bad attitude, but instead you endure it for the glory of Jesus, then Peter is saying, one day God is going to reward you for that. And that's why Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, put away malice, put away slander, because how do we naturally respond to the injustices that we face? In this world? Or how do we naturally respond to the injustices that we face in our workplaces? We start mouthing off about our boss, don't we? We have malice toward them. We want evil to befall them because of the way they have treated us. And then we start slandering our boss to our coworkers, don't we? 
See, the gospel comes in and changes everything, changes all of our relationship, changes how we are to react to the injustices that we face in this world and specifically in our workplaces. So when the slaves listening to this letter, when they heard this letter read and they heard chapter two, verse one, say, put away all malice and all slander, you bet their ears perked up because they thought, ouch, how have I been responding to my master? So let me say what I said earlier again. If your boss is a jerk to you and doesn't like the fact that you are a Christian, and they go out of their way to make things difficult for you because you are a Christian, and they give you grief, and they slander you, and you don't get that well-deserved raise, and you, they tell you that you can't listen to praise and worship music at work or whatever it is that comes upon you because you belong to Jesus. If you respond with grace and you don't mouth off or have a bad attitude, but instead you endure it for the glory of Jesus, you endure it to make Jesus look good, then Peter is saying that one day God will reward you. So the grief you endure does not compare to the grace you'll enjoy. The grief that you're going through in this work relationship where you're suffering because you're a Christian, there's no way in the world that that compares to the grace that you will enjoy one day when you see your Savior. The grief that you endure now does not even come close to the grace and the glory that you will enjoy for eternity in Christ's presence. And that's the whole point of the phrase that that Peter repeats twice here, verse 19, for this is a gracious thing. Verse 20, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Literally, this phrase translates as, this is grace. This is grace. It's grace, Peter says, if you endure unjust suffering. It's grace in God's eyes, Peter says, when you are persecuted at your workplace or your neighborhood or your family because of Jesus and yet you manage by God's grace to endure. Clearly, it's not limited to the workplace. Anytime Christians suffer unjustly because they are Christians, anytime they suffer because they belong to Jesus, Peter says, this is grace. But how is this grace? And what in the world does that even mean, Peter? What does it mean that it's grace to suffer unjustly? What does it mean that it's grace to suffer unjustly for Jesus at work or anywhere we find ourselves? How is it grace to endure pain and sorrow while suffering unjustly? Because it sure doesn't feel like grace when you're suffering an injustice, does it? It doesn't feel like grace when you're suffering unjustly. So what does Peter mean when he says, This is grace. When this happens to you, to your workplace, neighborhood, family, when you're mistreated because you belong to Jesus, when you suffer some injustice because you live in a broken world, this is grace. What in the world does Peter mean when he says that? Well, let's let Jesus help us here. Does that sound good? Do you trust Jesus? I trust Jesus. Let's let Jesus help us understand what this means. Because in Luke chapter 6, Jesus uses the same word for grace here, the word charis, that Peter uses here. And Jesus uses it to refer to the reward or a benefit that we receive. So I'll read Luke 6, 32 to 35, and you can see on the screen 
where the Greek word charis or grace is translated as benefit or reward. And then notice the parallel Greek word that Jesus uses at the very end of this section, the Greek word mithros, which is also translated as reward. So Luke chapter 6, verse 32. You can see it on the screen. If you love those who love you, what benefit? Charis, reward, grace is that to you. For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit, what reward, what grace is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit, what grace, what reward, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward, the Greek word mithros, will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So Jesus uses the word charis or the word grace as reward three times in this passage and then he uses another word for reward, mithros in verse 35, thus showing that the idea is the same. Jesus is speaking of reward in Luke 6. Jesus uses the word charis, grace, to describe a reward. And so all of this shows us that Peter is just plagiarizing Jesus here. He's just saying what he heard Jesus say in Luke 6. And Jesus' point in Luke 6 and Peter's point here is this. When you endure suffering at work, in your family, in your neighborhood, anywhere, because of your relationship to Jesus, because you belong to him, because you are in union with him, then you will receive a reward from God one day. If you are mistreated at work, mistreated in your neighborhood, your family, anywhere, and you endure and you bear up under that suffering, that's literally what the word endure means, to bear up underneath that suffering and you do not retaliate or mouth off, but you respond with grace and you endure by God's grace, by his strength, then Peter says, one day you will be rewarded by God. It's grace to suffer unjustly. There's a reward when we suffer injustices in this world and we endure by God's grace. Now, doesn't that inject you with some hope this morning? That when you un undergo unjust suffering at the hands of your employers because you are a Christian and you endure it in such a way that makes people see Jesus for who he is, not that you'll do it perfectly every time, but when you endure in such a way that people see Jesus for who he is, then God takes note of that and he will reward you one day. Doesn't that give you some hope that it's not all in vain? That means then that every time someone makes a snide remark about you and your beliefs, God writes that down. That means that every time you are mistreated at work because you're a Christian, God writes that down. Some of you have forgotten the times that you've been mistreated at work because you're a Christian. And if Jesus walked in here today, he would pull out a journal and say, come here, let me show you what happened six years ago on a Tuesday at 2.32 in the afternoon. This person mistreated you. They made a comment about you because you belong to me. I wrote it down, and I'm going to reward you for it. He keeps track of all of it. 
God is just keeping a journal of all the things that you suffer. Surely that's the point in the context of David's song in Psalm 56, 8, where he says, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Every time you suffer injustices because you belong to Jesus, Jesus writes it in a book. He keeps a journal of all of your late night tossings. He collects all of your tears in a bottle. And one day, he will reward you for all that you endured for him. He's gonna reward you because you belong to him and because you suffer for him and because you suffer for his cause and because you suffer for his kingdom and because you suffer for his gospel. That just might be what gets you through this next week. And what is the reward that we will receive? It's our inheritance that Peter mentioned back in 1 Peter 1, 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And ultimately, what is our inheritance? It's God himself. It's Jesus. Jesus is our reward. The reward, the all-satisfying joy of knowing and being with God forever, that is our reward. Peter is calling us to endure suffering For the reward. So that should motivate our obedience. This should motivate our resolve to endure whatever injustice we may be experiencing. Because when we endure unjust suffering, the reward is knowing and being with Jesus forever. The reward is being with the one our soul loves. The reward is Jesus himself. So what Peter is saying is that we should endure suffering and injustices because we know that one day God will make everything right. One day we will get our reward, which is none other than the Lord Jesus himself. Trust me on this grace. We've got to see this. We've got to understand this. We've got to comprehend this. We've got to ask God to open our hearts and our minds to see Jesus as we endure injustices in this world. We've got to keep our eyes on him as the infinitely glorious, all-satisfying Savior, to understand and believe that he is better than anything in this world. He's better than anything. Jesus is better than money. Jesus is better than kids and grandkids. Jesus is better than sex. Jesus is better than food. Jesus is better than that raise that we've been working hard for, that we want. Jesus is better for that long-for retirement that we'll finally get to, and then we'll work another part-time job because that's how it works, right? He's better than the extra week of vacation. He's better than getting that long-desired promotion. And we must Believe this, and we must taste and see that the Lord is good, as Peter says in chapter 2, verse 3, over and over again, because we might not get the raise that we want, and we might not get the transfer that we want, and we might not get the promotion that we want. And the only thing that will sustain us as we lose these things is Jesus The only thing that will sustain you as you lose the things that you want and as you lose the things that you love, even good things that he's given you, the only thing that will sustain you as you lose those things is Jesus. 
the only thing that will sustain us and give us grace and strength to endure injustices in this world. The only thing is if Jesus is our treasure. The only way we'll ever endure anything is if we believe that Jesus is better. And if Jesus is your treasure, if you believe that he is better than any raise you don't get, he's better than any promotion you don't get, then you can sing that song that David sings in Psalm chapter four, verse seven, where he says this, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. David's saying, God, you put more joy in my heart than they have when they have two homes, one on the lake, when they've got the boat, the 401k, the retirement in place, they've got the raise, they've got the money. Jesus, you put more joy in my heart than they have when they have everything that they could ever want and need. You give me more joy. If Jesus is your treasure, if he is your reward, then when you are mistreated at work, you can sing that song that David wrote in Psalm 4. Not the song that David Allen Coe wrote, take this job and shove it, I ain't working here no more. Instead, when Jesus is your treasure, you can sing this. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their wine and their grain abound. Meaning when they're loaded and they have everything they ever want. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when they get the raise, when they get the promotion, when they get the transfer, when they get what should have been mine. Oh, please understand this, Grace. The grief that you endure right now in this world does not compare to the grace, the reward that you will enjoy one day. The grief that you experience at work right now does not even compare with the grace that you will delight in one day that you will be satisfied with when you stand before him. You will see him. You will worship him. You will go, ah, that's worship, isn't it? When Jesus satisfies you above all things, the grief you experience in this world does not even compare. It does not even come close to Jesus. There's no comparing Jesus and injustices. Jesus is better. Jesus is always better. Do you believe it this morning? If you don't, ask God. Plead with God and say, open my eyes and let me see that Jesus is better. I'm fixated on this injustice that I'm experiencing. I'm suffering unjustly. It's got me captivated. It's got me mesmerized. There's a fog. I can't see Jesus. I see all the things that I'm losing in my life and I just can't see Jesus. God, open my eyes. Help me, Lord. Help me to see the gospel, to treasure the gospel that Jesus lived the life that I can never live because I know I'm a sinner And to believe and trust that Jesus died the death that I deserve because I'm a sinner. And to believe that you raised him from the dead and he's coming again and he's my righteousness and I have forgiveness of sins and I can come into your presence. God, help me to believe that. You have to pray and sing what we sang earlier. Jesus is better than riches, sorrows, all these things. Make my heart believe. It is not gonna happen naturally. You're not gonna wake up in the morning and say, Jesus is better than everything. You're gonna look in the mirror and say, man, I look rough and I need coffee. 
And then your family members are going to bother you and your coworkers are going to bother you. You got to get up in the morning and plead and say, oh God, make my heart believe that Jesus is better than everything that I'm losing. I'm in a fog and you've got to open my heart. Send out your light. Send out your truth as Psalm 43 says. Let them lead me to your holy hill and then I will go to the altar of God to God my exceeding joy. You will not wake up thinking God's your, your exceeding joy in the morning. You might every now and again, but if you're like me, you gotta get up and say, God, open my eyes because I'm distracted by a million things. And so the grace is greener on the other side of eternity. The grace, the reward is greener on the other side of eternity. I'm not denying the pain and the sorrow and the grief that we all experience in this life. They are real. The pain is real. The anger is real. The frustration is real. But we can endure. We can come up under unjust suffering by God's grace, by his strength. Because the grace, the reward is better on the other side. And the reward is God himself. We may lose our jobs, but we'll never lose Jesus. We may lose our well-deserved raise, but we'll never lose our redeemer. We may lose a part of our salary, but we'll never lose our savior. And so what we're called to do is to endure. We're called to enjoy the Lord's goodness to us more than the loss that we feel, even though that loss is real and painful. We're called to enjoy the Lord's goodness to us in the gospel, in giving us his son more than the loss that we feel, even though that loss is real and even though that loss is painful. So if you suffer unjustly at your workplace or anywhere for that matter, Let those who are responsible for that injustice, let them see you enjoying the Lord's goodness to you as he sustains you in this. As you suffer, let those responsible for the injustices in your life, let them see you enjoying the Lord's goodness to you in his son as he sustains you through what you're going through. Let them see you resting in the gospel so that it looks better than what they have or looks better in what they have withheld from you like a raise or a promotion. That's what happened to the people that the writer of Hebrews is writing to. Christians were undergoing suffering. Some were being thrown in prison. And as those Christians were in prison, their brothers and sisters in Christ went to visit them. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says to those who went to visit the people who were put in jail because they're Christians. This is what he says to those who visited them. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. So as these Christians went to visit fellow Christians in prison, people would come to their house and steal the flat screen TV. It's the persecution. We're going to take your home from you. We're going to take everything you have, everything that you worked hard for. We're taking it now. And what does the writer of Hebrews say? They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. 
Take it all. I've got a better treasure. I've got a better reward. It's a lasting one that will endure forever. The flat screen TV is going to go out one day. It'll become a pair of glasses or something. I don't even need a TV anymore. Technology will keep up. You can take it. What I have never goes out. I have a reward that will last forever. Take it all. Take it all and I will joyfully accept that. And when you can do that, by God's grace, because you can't do it perfectly every time, but by God's grace, when you do this, you glorify Jesus big time. You glorify Jesus as the great heart sustainer. Our calling is to glorify Jesus as we endure unjust suffering. In fact, Peter will go on to say in verse 21 that suffering is our calling in life. We are called to suffer just like Jesus suffered. This means then that what Ray Ortland said is true. The things you hate about your job are not an accident. They are a calling. You're there because the job stinks. You have been sent there to represent Christ. You may be the only Jesus your boss ever sees. You may be his or her only chance. What's wrong with your wacko boss? He or she doesn't believe in the love of Christ. Your calling is to surprise them by your Christ-likeness. So instead of singing that old country song, take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. Sing this. My boss is a jerk and I hate where I work. But I'll suffer in this place because of grace, because of the reward that will be mine one day. Jesus is better. May God empower you by his grace as the gospel changes everything in your life so that you can pray along with David in Psalm 4, 7 and say this, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their wine and grain abound. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when they get the raise, when they get the promotion, when they get the transfer, when they get what should have been mine. May God help us to put his son on display in our lives only by his grace. And may we do it for the grace, the reward that we will get one day, which is none other than God himself. That ought to be enough to get you through work this week. Let's pray. Father, such a tough passage to pray because none of us do this well. In fact, we probably rarely do it. How easy it is to mouth off and to have a bad attitude in our workplaces and neighborhoods and family when people mistreat us. And yet your son did it perfectly, as we'll see next week. There's no deceit in his mouth. He never mouthed off. And his perfection is ours this morning. So you look at us as if we have fully obeyed your law and responded the right way at work. So that's one truth, Father, that is in our minds. And the other truth is that we don't do it all the time. And we ask you, Father, in the middle part to just empower us by your grace to endure whatever suffering we go through in this life so that your son would go on display, so that people would see that he is the great heart sustainer. May we enjoy your goodness to us 
as we experience injustice in this world. Do it for our joy. Do it for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.